I am from the University of Surrey uh, now, <laughs> working on a different project to this, um, what's called Euro Students Project. If you're interested in that, I can tell you about that later. It's also about education. Um, but this, I'm talking to you today about a paper that I've written based on some findings of the Paired Peers Project, which I worked on, um, which was at Bristol University and University of Western England. So um, I'm going to just explain to you a bit more about that project um, in a minute. Now, so basically, Paired Peers was um, is a longitudinal project funded by the Leave Hume Trust. It was originally a three-year project that tracked um, 90. Well, we started with 90, but kind of had about 70 undergraduate students, half at the University of Bristol, a Russell Group, and half at um, UE, a post-92 university. These are both of the universities. So the project was, uh, the PI is Harriet Bradley, and we have quite a massive team. Nicola Ingram is part of the Paired Peers team as well. Um, so we basically followed these students from 2010 to 2013 for the three years of their degree. And just to say that what happened when that project finished in 2013 is that we applied for follow-on funding, and we managed to get that a year later. So the Paired Peers project is currently in phase two, where we're tracking the same cohort of students into the labour market. So they are, at the moment, in the third year post-graduation, I think, fourth year. They're in their fourth year post-graduation, and we're in the third year of the project. So it's quite a long time. They've had a gap in between, so we kind of... We've got, we've been interviewing them. This is a, we're about to do the ninth interview with the same students. We have about 50 of them left. So we have quite, a, we had quite a good cohort that stuck with the project. Um, and it's called Paired Peers because the students are paired by social class background and subject. So what that means is we have half students um, at UWE, half at Bristol, but then they're also split. We have half from what we classified as working class and half we classified middle class. Um, and we chose eight subjects that were studied, that were taught at both university, both universities. So then we'd have kind of, okay, we've got sociology students. So we had two middle class, two working class sociology students at each university, if that makes sense. So we could kind of understand, trying to hold constant as many things as possible to try to see whether their experiences were different because of their social class background and because of where they were studying. So the aims were to kind of explore the experiences of students at different types of universities and by different social class. We were looking at what type of capitals in the Borgesian sense students brought with them to university, what capitals they acquired while they were there, and now kind of how they're using their capitals in trying to get graduate jobs or um, in further study. So the aim was kind of to explore the ways in which university might promote or not promote social mobility. Um, and today, in my talk, I may, I'm not really focusing on the university very much as the unit of analysis. I'm looking at social class only. Um, so, yeah, because that was kind of the thing that was most important to this uh, finding. Right. So the context of the Paired Peers Project and also my specific presentation, it's um, very much around... Um, increased inequality and in outcomes for graduates, which I think has already been said a lot and it's kind of the topic of the day. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, so in 2015, the Melbourne Report for Social Mobility and Child Poverty Commission documented the way in which working class graduates are being excluded from elite professions. Um, and he said in this report that this research shows that young people with working class backgrounds are being systematically locked out of top jobs. Elite firms seem to require applicants to pass a poshness test 
to gain entry. Inevitably, that ends up excluding youngsters who have the right sort of grades and abilities, but whose parents do not have the right sort of bank balances. Um, and obviously, this is something that we know, sociology knows this. There's a lot of research that shows the ways that students with different social class backgrounds are being excluded from these elite firms. Um, and especially like new research as well that Kim Allen and Nicola are doing, which I'm going to talk about later, is kind of looking at that as well. But I think it's really good that this has now made it into policy quite overtly. And it really is, this report is kind of exact, <laughs> touching really on Bourdieu and saying that, you know, um, that we, those students who don't have the right type of cultural capital aren't getting these jobs. Um, and so it's kind of about cultural capital, but um, another way that young people from different social class backgrounds have an unequal footing is in regards to um, social capital and having access to valued and valuable networks that they can use. And that is what I'm going to be talking about today for the rest of the presentation. So I'm using social capital in the Bourdieusian sense. So Bourdieu argues that social capital is a tool for the reproduction of class inequality in society. And through the unequal distribution of access to resources, uh, in this case networks, the dominant classes secure their position and ensure it's reproduced. So Bourdieu defines social capital as the sum of the resources, actual or virtual, that accrue to an individual or group by virtue of possessing a durable network of more or less institutionalised relationships of mutual acquaintance and recognition. Um, which is a big mouthful of a quote, but <laughs> basically, <laughs> yeah, all the way through. So, yeah, probably. Um, okay, so it's about kind of having networks, and uh, as is suggested by his concept of uh, recognition here, social capital is not just about how many people an individual ha knows, but also is measured by those individuals' position in social space. So the, the amount of symbolically legitimated capitals your actual network has access to as well. So this is where I think people often say misunderstand Bourdieu as being uh, deterministic or, or arguing that working class people lack capitals. But I don't think he's saying that. He's saying that they're, they're, the social capital they have access to isn't the type of social capital that will is symbolically legitimated in wider society. So it's not actually useful for them in trying to get a position in a kind of middle class profession because... It, it won't help them in that way. So, um, yeah, so from a Bourdieusian perspective, people in dominant positions are more likely to have access to networks of greater value because the capital that they possess is symbolically legitimized. So it's important to also understand that social capital doesn't just exist in its own right through knowing people. So as the term capital implies, social capital is actually about investment. So Bourdieu says... Um, that the network of relationships is the product of investment strategies, individual or collective, consciously or unconsciously aimed at establishing or reproducing social relationships that are directly usable in the short or long term. So it's about investing in your social capital and using it. You have to do something with it. So we need to also not just understand whether young people have access to capital, but we have to understand their willingness and ability to actually invest and use the social capital. So having contacts is not automatically transferable into profit. You have to actually uh, do something with it. So a lot of literature has already focused on the ways in which middle class uh, young people and students are actively engaged in mobilising uh, social capital and other forms. It's often assumed that working class students lack social capital. Um, and actually, that is kind of, that's not 
uh, wrong. And I mean, we did find a lot of that in the Paired Peers pro project that, of course, the working class students had a lot less social capital. Um, but what I'm going to be focusing on is a few working class students who actually did mention to us that they had some contacts but rejected the idea of using them. And if you're interested, another paper from our project um, here actually looked at how students were very much engaged in mobilising capitals. So this paper is looking at the non-mobilisation of capitals. Okay. So just first to kind of say that... Um, Actually, I just realised I should actually just before I go into today to have a brief, briefly explain to you how we classified students by social class because I'm now talking about them in class terms. So we we the main indicators of social class we used were parents whether your parents had a degree and also whether the, the what jobs their parents were doing. But we also asked them we had a survey which we also collected information on whether they were receiving grants and bursaries. Um, we looked at how they self-defined as well as social class terms. Um, and a few other things like that. Okay. And I will come back to talking about class a little bit when I get onto my students that I'm focusing on. So our data kind of highlights the way in which social capital was crucial for our students for facilitating work experience specifically. So both paid and unpaid. These work experiences were then often central for them getting jobs. So I think the social capital is mainly working in the work experience part, but then that has big implications on when they're graduating. So Bianca, a working class student here, tells us about her struggle with getting some work experience in a law firm. And she says, one of the law firms I went to, I said, is there any chance I can gain some work experience? She's like, oh, do you know someone at the firm then? And I was like, no. And she's like, oh, no, we don't, unfortunately. <laughs> so in contrast to Bianca's story, oh, yeah, and I just Ah, no, okay, sorry, this quote's a bit blocked out. But in contrast to Bianca's story, many of the middle-class students had access to networks and were actively involved in mobilising them, as I said before, something that they recognised they needed to do to get in particular industries, and one of these industries was publishing. So Harriet says, publishing's kind of an area that you need to know people in to progress. And I was talking to my parents, and I was like, I don't know anyone. And then we were like, we must know someone. And I've got... A a, fr a family friend whose daughter, our mums were in the antenatal group together. Her dad, though, is like a CEO of a publishing house or something. So I was like, oh, I'll go and see him over the summer. And in my paper, if you, uh, this is actually a published paper that I'm presenting on. You can kind of explore Harriet's story a bit more because there's a, a bit more information about how she goes about this and kind of inviting him to dinner and this kind of tacit awareness that she needed to do it in a kind of informal setting, not kind of cold calling. There was like this awareness of how to actually network in the right way. But just to move on, another area where contacts were seen as important was medicine. Um, so Edward says, my parents know quite a few doctors to ask for me to do work experience with. I know all the hospitals do have work experience program that you can go and work for a week or so. So again, asking uh, for contacts to do that. And finance was a big one as well that came up as somewhere students really were using social capital. So Dylan says, I'm looking at doing an internship at a trading firm, but it's so difficult at the minute, so we'll see how that goes. And the interviewer says, quite competitive, is it? Yeah, extremely. You know, it's a case of who you know, not what you know in some cases. So I'm trying to pull in any family ties. Oh, do you know anyone? Yeah, my dad's quite friendly with one of the traders at a large investment company. Oh, great. Is he in a useful position to pull strings? Yes, he was the head of the internship scheme. <laughs> That's very handy. <laughs> Okay, so um, I said I wasn't really focusing on the middle class students mobilising capital, but these kind of, it's important to set this up with, with showing you some of that. So in kind of 
so these students were kind of investing in using family connections to help them get a foot in the door. And as I said before, many of our working class students didn't have access to valuable social capital at all. Um, and that's important to bear in mind. That's, I'm not trying to say that they all did have this. But what I'm interested in is three students, Abigail, Charlie and Rob, who actually did mention having contacts. Um, but in contrast to this kind of what I'm arguing, a sense of entitlement displayed by the middle class students who were confidently pulling strings where possible to give them an advantage. These students expressed a deep commitment to a sense of honour and a rejection of practices they viewed as morally corrupt and discussed a desire to make it themselves. And that's what I'm now going to focus on. I'm just going to introduce you to Abigail, Charlie and Rob. And this is something that I have only recently, I've just started thinking through because this paper was kind of written a few years ago. So I've now started thinking about this. And, my, and I think it's quite interesting to point out that Abigail, Charlie and Rob aren't actually really typical working class students. And when we actually chose our students, we did try, people always say, you know, it's not really that binary, and it's true, but we tried really hard to pick the students who fit most clearly into class categories. We kind of tried to ignore the muddle in the middle in some ways because it was just, um, it would have, would have really have helped us to look at our aims. So, but the thing is, some inevitably we ended up with some students who were not clearly in either box. And I think Abigail, Charlie and Rob are students that we considered are kind of upper working class in some ways, which I think might explain why they had access to capital um, and you can see that particularly in terms of their parents jobs I think that the none of them had any their parents didn't have experience of higher education none of them so I think that was probably a lot of the reason why they got classified into this box as like the, the, in that way they were all from UE which I mean I don't think that's particularly significant um, but that's just the way it is. I did, there is a student actually who I'm not mentioning here, but he does talk about this as well, and he's from the University of Bristol, so I don't think um, it's only something at UWE. And um, it was interesting though that they were all in receipt of grants, so and they all self-defined as working class on their surveys. So, uh, but yeah, I think there's some kind of jobs in here which may put them into middle class boxes uh, in occupation terms. Okay. So that's just an air of caution, but I am still going to refer to them all as working class, okay, because that's how we classified them. Okay, so when we asked, like, Abigail, for example, that, um, whether she had any contacts, she said, yeah, there are loads of people. It's just I'd rather do it for myself. Do you know what I mean? My mum's best friend worked for a big accounting firm, and she was quite near the top as well. And then my dad's got a friend at a different accounting firm who's near the top. And I just don't want to kind of, I'd rather know that I got in there myself. I won't. I won't touch them. I'll do it myself. I can go somewhere else if I can't get in where I want to. And Rob says a very similar thing. No, because I wouldn't want my family to help me. Because I want to be able to say I've achieved this without the help of someone else. Whereas some of my friends from school are very much relying on who their grandparents know or who their parents know to get them a job at the end of it, which I don't agree with. Because if your parents have managed to get a career for themselves, why can't you? And finally, Charlie says, I could get contacts and stuff like that and a step up easy from the family, but I just wouldn't. And why not? Out of principle, really, I just would hate to be the guy in the workplace who just got there on his own merit off like just knowing someone higher up. So I think this is really interesting and it's only the three students that I noticed, but I think it'd be interesting to explore further because it, it just came out of their narratives. It wasn't like we, we didn't ask all the students, are you opposed to using your networks? Because that wasn't really 
what we were looking at at that point, but I think that actually it would be interesting to, to explore more with the rest of the cohort. But this just came out from, from these students when we were talking about it. Um, okay, so Bourdieu discusses the way in which those in dominated positions in society reject things which are not available to them, the denial of what is already denied. Rather, he says, they develop tastes, practices and dispositions which are in line with their objective opportunities. But what I think is interesting here is that these students are rejecting something that's available. They explicitly discuss having contacts that they refuse to utilise. And here Bourdieu's theorising is actually helpful in a way which he did not develop himself. He's not explained how and why some people choose not to exploit potential opportunities to advantage their position in a particular field. That doesn't work. That isn't, that's not what he's looked at. So I argue that this is a, a product and a part of social mobility. And it's possible that these young people have developed a habitus which is in tune to a sense of honour in line with their field of origin, in which meritocratic values are of central importance. They do not feel a sense of entitlement to exist in a middle-class field that they're venturing into. Rather, they feel that they must prove their worthiness to be there. So, and I'll come back to kind of meritocracy um, in a minute, but what do I mean by a sense of honour? So... Bourdieu writes about honour in his work in Algeria in relation to religious honour, but is also relevant for this paper. So he says, the point of honour is a permanent disposition embedded in the agent's very bodies in the form of mental dispositions, schemes of perceptions and thought. What is called a sense of honour is nothing other than the cultivated disposition inscribed in the body, schema and the schemes of thought. So a sense of honour, therefore, could be understood as part of the habitus, part of a system of durable transposable dispositions. And in the published paper, I draw on Andrew Sayer and Bev Skeggs as well, who describe the way in which dominated communities are constantly subjected to feelings of shame. Their tastes, practices and dispositions are arbitrarily devalued in the process of what Bourdieu calls symbolic violence. Valerie Hay argues that traits of honour and respectability are extremely important in such devalued communities as they attempt to fight against this discourse and present themselves as individuals of value and moral worth. So it's possible to argue then that these young people have developed a sense of honour which, being part of their habitus, was developed from a dominated position in social space and in a sense pre-adapted to the demands of that location. And Marcus, who is another working class student, said... To, to us, where I come from, the whole networking thing isn't really used. From his location in social space, the act of utilising one's network to secure a job in a middle-class industry is seen as morally corrupt. Arguably, they see this as cheating, and it's something which undermines their commitment to a sense of honour. Okay, so just to come back to kind of the idea of meritocracy. The quotes from Abigail, Charlie and Rob all display a commitment to ideals of meritocracy. Charlie explicitly uses the term merit, arguing that he would not want his position in the office to be defined by anything other than his own merit. Nepotism for them is seen as underhand. Abigail and Rob express a wish for self-reliance. Abigail repeatedly says that she would rather do it for herself, and Rob says he wants to be able to say, I've achieved this without the help of someone else. It's as if they feel that they need to prove themselves, and accepting any help will devalue them and their achievements. So I argue that in contrast to their middle-class peers, they do not feel a sense of entitlement to middle-class jobs. So instead, they feel that they need to prove themselves worthy to take those jobs. So 
It's interesting to contrast these meritocratic sentiments of wanting to prove themselves with a middle-class student who sort of justifies using contacts through arguing he's already proven himself through his degree. Um, so the whole quote is quite telling, um, but when I ask him if he thinks that people from different backgrounds will have the same opportunities as each other after university, he says, no, no. It's all about who you know. I mean, obviously my job is essentially who I know. And even if I didn't get this job, I would have been able to get another decent one just because of family members or people that I know through my dad or mum. I could think of about three or four people that would give me a decent paying job. I mean, obviously it's also to do with the fact that I've proven that I'm capable enough of doing it with the whole uni thing. But it's just a foot in a door. Like, if you don't know anyone, there's not really much to distinguish you. So, yeah, I guess your opportunities are different. And it's interesting that all the students, well, the majority of the students in the project and all of the students kind of here that I'm talking about were on track for two one degrees, um, many of them from a Russell Group University. So in a sense, they, they've all proven that they're capable by these measures that Luke's talking about. But I think that the difference seems to be in regards to their feelings of confidence and entitlement to the job. So... It's important just to point out that there actually were some examples of middle-class students um, refusing, well, yeah, not wanting to use their networks, but this was extremely rare, but it did happen. Um, what was more prominent, though, was that many of the middle-class students did actually speak of feelings of internal conflict. They felt extremely guilty about using their contacts, and they recognised that this gave them an unfair advantage over peers without access to these resources. Um, so that's why I'm put question mark. I don't, I'm not arguing that this is entirely shameless entitlement. And I think some of them definitely felt a real kind of internal conflict about this. But these feelings didn't prevent them from doing what was necessary. Um, but they just spoke about being embarrassed at times. So Nicola says, my dad's quite high up in renewable engineering. So he advises the government. So a lot of people owe him a lot of favours around the country. So when that comes to finding an internship, if everything doesn't go well this summer, I can pretty much go to France and study in Lyon for a couple of months because people owe him a lot of favours, which is really, I'm really not proud of it. It's quite embarrassing to say. Okay. So, so in conclusion then, it is, my paper kind of shows that it's really not just about what you know. Um, a degree is not enough. But it's also not just about who you know, um, it's also about a feel for the game and a, willing, and a willingness to engage in it, crucially. And I think it's really important that we challenge what counts as valuable experiences, I think is kind of the main implication for me of this. Because we've had discussions in the Paired Peers team about whether, what we should do. And I have a lot of people contacting me about this and I find it very uncomfortable because people, I get people contacting me like, oh, you know, well, we're trying to get working class students contacts, but now you're saying they're not going to use them. What should we do? And like, it's really weird. And I'm, I'm kind of like, well, I don't, like, do we want to say to them, yes, use your networks? Like, do we want to convince these students that actually they should be using their networks because it will help them and they, why not everybody else's? Or do we actually say, yes, well done, you're being, like, it's right that you don't want to use them. Like, shouldn't we challenge the whole idea of nepotism in the first place rather than encouraging more students to participate in that? So, yeah, I think that's what I think. But, I mean, it could, yeah, at the moment, the way it is, is attention because you do also want to tell them to use their networks. And I think that this paper was written based on the first paired peers project, it's quite important. So at this point, none of the students had actually tried to get a job, really. They, this was all about work experience. But I think 
it will, I really, I'm going to revisit our data now and have a look about, at what actually happens when they are now trying to get jobs and whether they change their strategy and do they now decide they have to use those networks if they're struggling to get jobs um, and how that changes. So that's kind of the next step to look at in um, this paper. And I just want to kind of end on a quote that I think is quite important because I think again we should be challenging what counts as valuable work experience and what is important on the CV and why is it that these unpaid or paid work experiences perhaps where you're making cups of tea for someone in uh, in a law firm is actually what is valuable and what counts on their CV it shouldn't be that way so that's what we need to tell employers so Zoe one of our working class students she says um, she was talking about kind of how she perceives that she will struggle when she leaves university. And she says the vast majority of people in this university, and she's at the University of Bristol, or she was, have never worked worked, but they've had work experience because someone's arranged it. They don't know what work is yet, but I already know what work is. So I think that any employer that I talk to would appreciate and value that as much or even as more as saying, oh, I have this work experience, blah, blah. Oh, well, so the employer would say, oh, well, you couldn't really have work experience at that time because you had other commitments. You were working, working to support yourself through university. So I think that's probably more of a beneficial thing to have. Well, I hope, anyway. Sorry, I sh that, that isn't her talking about her fear. In fact, at this stage, she was very confident that she had these set of skills that employers would like because she'd worked really hard and she had a term-time job and she didn't really even engage in the kind of extracurricular CV building things because she couldn't because she was working so hard um, all the time. Um, so she had a lot of hope at this stage, but I do know that this isn't, this isn't how Zoe's ended and actually she had to reevaluate that and there's a lot of interviews with her after where she's talking a lot about realizing that her degree was not that valuable and she you know she thought having a 2-1 from a Russell Group University in law would passport her to a graduate job and she's really really struggling and she realizes that it isn't just that tick box so that isn't what's going to get her a job um so yeah it's quite sad actually Zoe's story but this it's changed it's not about hope anymore it's quite sad but hopefully she <coughs> Hopefully, I'm saying hope. Hopefully, she will get there in the end. Okay. Um, and just to say, this is the reference if you want to look at the paper. Um, it is online only um, at the moment in BGSE. And also, just to flag up here that the Paired Peers, <laughs> we were supposed to bring some flyers, but we forgot them. The Paired Peers project is actually having a final dissemination for the second phase of our project this um, summer in July, 6th of July here in London. If anyone's interested, we do have some fantastic speakers. We'll also be presenting the findings of phase two. Um, and also we'll have something which is always quite popular, um, a panel with our Paired Peers graduates, so actual participants, which people don't usually do, but we've done this a couple of times and it's very popular. So we'll have um, the students there so people can talk to them and ask them questions. Um, and yeah, that's it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.